0: Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 9, verses 13 through 21. And we are still in the midst of all the plagues uh, coming on Egypt, uh, bringing judgment on all the gods of Egypt and on Pharaoh himself and uh, as a way of bringing the people out. And the good news is, this morning, we don't actually have to go through another one of the plagues. We just get ready for one. <laughs> but we'll just keep on going through. Uh, before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made. And God, we do thank you for your word which you have given to us. And God, we do pray that you would help us to hear you. Give us ears to hear your word for us. And I pray that you'd give us... Ears to hear, minds to think and understand, and hearts to meditate and to receive your word into our lives, not just for this morning, but for always. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Exodus chapter 9, verses 13 through 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning. Confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people. So you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose that I might show you my power And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter. Because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. We will see what happens there next week, though you can probably guess. I say like you haven't already read it yourselves. Our gospel reading this morning is from Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 37. As one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, and noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all know what a paradox is? It's, It's two doctors. That's not right. A paradox. I really tried to not make that joke and it just came out anyway. I'm sorry. A paradox is this uh, thing that we have where you have something, uh, two things that are both simultaneously true, even though there's an apparent contradiction. It doesn't seem like they could both be true at the same time. And yet somehow they are. So, for example, what we just read where Jesus is talking and he says, you know, how can how can the Messiah be the son of David if David calls him his Lord? And everybody's like, yeah, that's a good point. That seems like those two things maybe contradict each other. Hmm, I don't know what to do with that. And yet, you know, we look back on it. Was Jesus the son of David? Yes, he is. <laughs> yeah, Jesus is the son of David. And is Jesus also David's Lord? Yes, he is. And so these things that seem contradictory, like, well, you can't have, you can't be both of those. Yeah, you can, even though it seems like it's not. Um, we think about... The Trinity itself is, is God one? Yes. Is God three persons? Yes. Wait, you can't have that. You can't have one God and three persons. Yeah, you can. And, uh, and so we know that those are true, even though it seems like a contradiction. And just one more on that. We look at, you know, how Jesus as the Messiah is, victorious over sin and evil and death. And how is it that he is victorious? By suffering and dying, right? He conquers by being conquered. Well, that doesn't sound right. That sounds like a contradiction. You can't have it uh, that way. And yet, see that those are both true. And when we get get into uh, our sermon text this morning, we see some similar kinds of things going on. In things that are apparent contradictions and yet are true, as it relates to um, as it relates to the people of God, we are looking at Revelation chapter eleven, uh, verses one through fourteen. And if you want to catch all of the references here, I would encourage you to read First Kings and Exodus and Daniel, and Zechariah, and the rest of the Old Testament and New Testament. Okay, here goes. I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth, They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified for three and a half days. Some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tent of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. All right. Now, anything there you think we might need to unpack a little bit? Oh, my goodness. So much. So much. I'll give you a couple things just real quick. One is when we're looking at time frame stuff, did you notice the change of verb tense? How it starts off and it's talking about, like, there are things that are in the present tense or things that are in the in the future tense and then all of a sudden we're in the past tense and we're just going straight through as though all of the it's all talking about the same kind of time period but sometimes he's talking about it as though it's something that's going to happen, sometimes it's something that's happening right now, and sometimes as something that's already happening. and we're like, "What? <laughs> How can you be jumping around like this? Welcome to Revelation." And that is where we are in the book of Revelation is in this period of the book where we are looking at the this pause time, this time of pausing between the sixth and seventh trumpets. And so just like we saw with the seals, where it was, you have one, two, three, four, five, six, and there's escalation of judgment on the wickedness and all that is destroying God's good creation. And then the seventh is going to be that final judgment on all of it, where he does away with all the wickedness in between the sixth and the seventh. You have this pause of... Okay, wait, so who who can stand? Can anyone, can anyone survive that judgment? And we see that it's those who are in Christ. The same kind of thing is what's going on here. Now we're looking at the same kind of thing, but with the trumpets, and you see this escalation of judgment on the wickedness that's coming. And you get between the sixth and the seventh, and we have this pause, and that's where we are. And it's like, okay, so who is it? can stand. And so f- what we saw first in that was John last week being told, you know, come take this scroll and eat it. And it's going to be sweet in your mouth, but it's going to turn your stomach sour. And we talked about the the good news of the gospel. And yet there is a a, a difficulty to the message as well that involves our own <laughs> personal sacrifice as well as grieving for those on whom judgment comes. So we saw that last week. Then this week, we're looking at these two witnesses and how they are kind of contrasted with those who are uh, those, uh, how does it put it, those who live on the earth, is how it's put one time. Um, ah, I know it puts it another way another time. Inhabitants of the earth, there we go. So in verse 10, the inhabitants of the earth, and then uh, later, you know, The two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. This way of talking throughout revelation has to do with those who basically are just earthlings. (laughs) Like there's only the, what's here and now that's it. That's all that actually matters. And it's the, you know, we eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow. We die. That line of thinking is you are just living for today and for yourself, and who cares about anybody else, who cares about uh, what happens down the road, who cares about anything transcendent. And here's where the contrast comes in. So the depiction we have of these two witnesses, and there's so much going on here uh, symbolically, talking about these witnesses as... uh, as olive trees and as lampstands and as prophets. And here we have in these various time periods. We have multiple images being given representing the church, the people of God who are those who are representing him and who are witnesses to who he is for real and how he has revealed himself in Jesus and how his kingdom is different than the kingdoms of the world. Now think about this. If you have been called to be a witness in a court proceeding, what is it that you are supposed to do? Tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, right? But you're also supposed to do that based on what you personally have actually experienced, what you have seen and heard. You can't go in there and be like, well, my, you know, my cousin told my friend who told my, and then, you know, came around to me. And so I'm pretty sure that's what happened. It's like, get out of (laughs) here. You know, a witness is somebody who testifies to what they have personally experienced, what they have seen, what they have heard, what they know to be the case. And this is uh, where we have the the witnesses, the people of God. Uh, Why two witnesses? Because that is what it. It's what it takes uh, in the Old Testament to be a witness. You can't convict anybody just on one person's say and so. It takes two, and we see that reflected throughout the New Testament as well, even things that Jesus says on that. And and so I do see this being the, the people of God represented as these two witnesses who are testifying to who Jesus is, how God has revealed himself in Jesus, and how the kingdom of God is so different. This is given to us, though, in all this imagery of, like, temple. And, I mean, are the people of God ever referred to as the temple? Yep. <laughs> but there's also this imagery of part of it being measured off as though it's being protected and part of it being trampled. And we go, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that some people will be protected and some people will be trampled on? Yeah, maybe. I think it's actually a way of kind of this paradox thing we're talking about how in some ways the church is trampled on by the world. But in some ways the church is simultaneously protected by God. And you go, well, that's just, you're just making that up out of nowhere. I'm not. But if we take a look back at Jesus, and remember, this is a revelation of Jesus. If you take a look back at Jesus, is this not exactly what we see? the paradox in his own life. Is he trampled on by the world? Yeah. And we watch him get flogged. We watch him get spit on. We watch him get mocked. We watch him get crucified. Is he simultaneously protected by God? Yeah, he is. And this is what we're seeing now is the same thing with those who testify to him, those who are the true witnesses of Jesus. The same kind of thing is what we ought to expect that we will be trampled on by the world, but at the same time, somehow protected. We see this again in the, um there are actually multiple visions going on here, kind of back to back. So the first is the measure in the temple and the trampling. The second is the two witnesses. And um, you notice the time period, the 42 months and the 1,260 days? You're going to see these same time periods show up again and again. They're the same time period. And so this is a way of looking at the same thing again, but kind of from another angle. It's also three and a half years. We see that time period a bunch too, This where you might expect it to be a seven-year period, but it gets cut in half as an extension of God's mercy that the judgment doesn't just go on and on. But here we have these witnesses. Now, they're depicted very much in terms like Moses and Elijah. Did you recognize any of that? That kind of language? I mean, good grief. It says, verse 6, they have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. Does that sound like anybody from the Old Testament? It's exactly what happened with Elijah, right? How long did he shut up the heavens? Three and a half years. Oh, there it is again. <laughs> and then we have, they have the power to turn the waters into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague. Does that sound like anybody from the Old Testament? That's pretty much Moses, right? And so we're seeing these references to Moses and to Elijah, not saying that that's who these two individuals are, but these two representing the whole people of God, that the people of God will be in continuity with the people of God from all time. That in the same way that those people were giving signs of who God really is, so too the church now. This is what we do. As we witness to who Jesus is, we are giving testimony uh, with our lives in a similar way that they gave testimony with their lives. And of course, then what happens to these witnesses in this vision is they get killed, right? They get killed, and the the inhabitants of the earth, those who just don't see beyond their own personal reach, See them laying their dead, refuse to bury them, celebrate actually they're dead. Because my goodness, did those people cause us problems all the time by just being, this is the same kind of thing. Think about the um, Jesus as you read about him in the gospels and there's all this opposition to Jesus and you're like, why is there opposition to Jesus? Look at what he's doing. He's doing nothing but good for everyone he comes in contact with. Why would somebody oppose somebody who's only doing good all the time? Unless you're personally committed to not doing good. And the good that you're seeing in him is now either making you look bad or is getting in the way of what you're trying to accomplish, right? And this is why you see Jesus do some amazing thing. He raises Lazarus from the dead and people are like, we got to kill him. What? (laughs) And they say we've got to kill him because if he goes on like this, everyone's going to start following him. And then the Romans are going to come in and they're going to take our country away. We've got to stop him. We've got to put Jesus down. And so, same thing here. If you have people who are testifying to the goodness of God and the way that his kingdom is different than the ways of this world, you're going to have a lot of people who don't want to hear it because they're committed to a very different way of seeing everything. They don't want to hear it. And so when the church and when Christians do get persecuted one way or another. You see people rejoice. You see this around the world already. And there, I don't think there's ever been a time where this wasn't happening somewhere in the world of people persecuting Christians and then being glad that they're gone. But here's the paradox again, even as they are rejoicing that they have that these, uh, Witnesses are gone. Celebrating, giving each other gifts. Aren't we glad that now we can do everything our own way? We don't have to worry about those guys anymore. And what happens? There are multiple times in the Old Testament where we see this measuring thing happen. Uh, One in Zechariah, another in Ezekiel. And read the Zechariah one, it's chapter Chapter 2 and 4 are very helpful here because there you get the olive trees and the lampstands and the measuring temple. Go read it. But also you get it in Ezekiel. And in both cases, this is a, a rebuilding after everything looked like it was gone. In fact, in Ezekiel, it starts in chapter 40 when he starts measuring the temple. But in chapter 37, not long before that, is where you have this vision of the valley of dry bones. And so he goes out and he sees all these bones. They're just dry. They're, can they live? Sure looks like this is absolutely hopeless. And then prophesies to them, God breathes on them, and they stand up and they become enfleshed again, and they do live. And this is a way of depicting visually what God is saying about what seemed hopeless, even with the people of Israel. And this is what we're seeing here, too: that in a situation where it seems hopeless. And everyone's like, it's done. It's over. It's not over at all. And God, once again, we have after three and a half days, that three and a half again, the breath of life from God entered them. They stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And so we have this difference between those who are the earth dwellers and those who are the heaven dwellers. Are you getting that? <laughs> And this is part of what we are to be witnessing and testifying to is the way in which we can now already have a part of that eternal life, that is, this life with God through Jesus kind of simultaneously in heaven and on earth at the same time. That we would not be mere earth dwellers, but that we would be... That's right. That we would be heaven dwellers even on earth. This is what we see with Jesus. And when this happens, one final part here, uh, in verses 13 and 14, we see some more references to things that we've kind of looked at or heard about. I didn't go into them. But we talked about the verse 8, talking about Sodom and Egypt. And we see the same same kinds of things alluded to here. Again, Moses, Elijah kind of things. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. That sounds bad, doesn't it? A tenth of the people, a tenth of the city collapsed, 7,000 people were killed. That does sound bad. Until we realize that Biblically, this is actually backwards from the judgments that we've seen in some of the Old Testament passages. And so instead of there being a tenth that is saved when 90% is restored, think about how many times in the Old Testament you see almost everybody is destroyed, but there's just a few, there's just a little bit that gets saved out of that, right? You see that quite a bit. Even with Elijah when he thinks he's the only one, and God's like, No, actually, I've saved 7,000 in all Israel who have not bowed the, na- the knee to Baal. And here we have the opposite. And so now it's only a tenth that are destroyed. 90% are saved. What? It's only 7,000 um, are killed in the earthquake. But all the rest are saved. What? And so we see this unexpected mercy and grace, even in this moment, even as we are on the eve of judgment. And it's—and I think part of that is because of the way in which these judgments are to also themselves be witnesses to who God is. And the same way what we were looking at in Exodus this morning of God saying he's going to send the, the plague of hail. And he says for by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose that I might show show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so instead of just wiping them out, they do go through this series of judgments so that even they will know who God is, his greatness, his power, but also his mercy and grace. Now, we see the same kind of thing even here in this time of judgment. We will look next week at the seventh trumpet, and then we get into some really bizarre stuff like we haven't yet. But for now, I do want us to consider what this word is for us today as those who are a part of the people of God, who are supposed to be testifying to who God is And how his kingdom is different than the kingdoms of the world. How we are those who in Christ are simultaneously those who dwell in heaven even while on the earth. That we have a very different perspective on things because of who Jesus is. And not just who he is in the abstract, but who he is for real and in our own lives. That we would be those who testify to the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth because it is what we have seen and known and experienced personally. And that no matter what challenges and persecutions and troubles that may bring us, we know that in Christ we do have the victory come what may. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.